Diana told me I could talk about anything I wanted to talk about. So I'm going to um, muse a little bit about some uh, current events and some past events, and then I want to open it up and take questions or entertain discussion. And I graduated from law school in 1974, so let's put that in context. It was the year that the first class of women who had been here four years as undergraduates graduated from the university. It was a year before women got the right to have credit cards in our own name in the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. It was just after uh, Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972 were passed, but before the regulations were put in place. Um, lots has happened and transpired since then, um, some, some of it positive and some maybe arguably not so positive. But I think it's just important to, to see that the reality of of where we were, I mean, I'm old, but I'm not dead yet, um, in my lifetime where we started, because I you know, couldn't come to the university as a woman uh, undergraduate because it was gender segregated. So was Madison, so was Radford, um, so was Mary Washington, and, uh, and, you know, and so was VMI. And you know, people don't recognize the reality of that and what it meant. When we came to law school, when I entered law school, um, there were 8% women here. And we went to Al Turnbull, and we had compared notes about our qualifications. And we recognized that if you looked at us on a bell curve, we were all at the top end of the bell curve. And, and the men in the class were arrayed a little bit more evenly across the, across the bell curve of the class. And we said to Al, you know, why is that? And he said, oh, it's a consequence of the way the applicant pool looks. And we said, fine, send us out there to, uh, to, to look for more women students. And so he did. And we, one of the first stops we made was at Madison. And we were so excited because it was two years after co-education at Madison. And we were told that we were going to be meeting the head of the pre-law society, the student class, the student body president, the senior class president, and a number of other people who had student leadership positions on campus, and we thought, well, those are the kinds of you know, women that we really can uh, bring to the law school and help energize uh, uh, the, the law school and help build, you know, more, build the law school to a place that accommodates more women and more easily. And, of course, we got there, and all of those people were men. There was 2% men in the student population, and yet the positions of power had been seated already, uh, to the minority of people in the in the student population at Madison that were uh, still men, so you know we we have come a long way, and and that's just to provide a little uh, context about my career. Uh, Diana did say I was the first woman to serve as chief deputy attorney general in Virginia, and um, I'm proud of that, and also glad that there have been several others since me. So I'm no longer the only woman who served in that position. And, you know, that's, in general, we have opened up a lot of, of the uh, law jobs and the, and the public uh, service jobs, uh, regardless of gender. So when I started thinking about this, I started thinking about um, kind of what I'm dealing with on a daily basis now. And it, it reminded me to think back to a speech that I heard Professor Cochran give many years ago on having how important it is to understand the difference between gender and sex. And at the time that I heard her talk, I was, let's just say, I, I, I had difficulty really fully understanding her uh, scholarly and theoretical framework for the conversation. But in my practical life today, it's an everyday part of our conversation. 
Um, you know, I look through I, I look through the uh, the Code of Virginia before I came here, and there are 106 references to women. Okay, in the Code of Virginia, and what's interesting about them is what we might want to do with them or not want to do with them moving forward. So, for example, we have um, we have a special statute that talks about the willful and deliberate killing of a pregnant woman. But I have friends who are men who can get pregnant. So if someone were to kill one of them, that wouldn't necessarily come within our current statute because it doesn't use any kind of word that you could say was inclusive. It says pregnant woman. Um, similarly, um, it is a crime in Virginia and has always been a crime in Virginia to induce an abortion. Um, it's not a crime if you follow some certain rules. We have very prescriptive rules for when it would be okay to do an abortion, but it is a criminal act. And, and so when people talk about how other states are criminalizing abortion, I go, well, you know, in Virginia, it's always been a criminal act. It's only, an, it's only not a criminal act if you follow very prescriptive rules to do it. But our basic law says that except as provided in other sections of this article, those are the things like you do informed consent, you do first trimester, second trimester, third trimester, if any person administered to or caused to be taken by a woman, any drug or other thing that you know has the intent to destroy her, her unborn child or to produce an abortion is a class four felony. But if that person is not a woman, but that person still you know has a uterus and becomes pregnant, Arguably, since criminal statutes are construed how, narrowly, um, it wouldn't be a crime, but it would be a crime if it were a woman. So we have, we have those kinds of laws in the books. We have laws on the books that date back to the time before, what I call the time before, where we were, women were property of the men we were married to, and we still have specific statutes about contracts of and suits by and against married women that provide that you know gratuitously that we can contract and be contracted with and sue in the same as if we were unmarried but that talks about women only not men and the same is true about how married women may acquire and dispose of property so you've got all of these references to women and then we have something that in theory is supposed to be um, a, a a provision at the beginning of the code that tells you how to interpret the rest of the code when it uses uh, gendered language. But even that provision is interesting because of what it, what what's happened to it. So we used to have uh, in the code at in the first chapter of the code a provision that said gender. A word importing the masculine gender only may extend and be applied, sorry, emphasis wrong. A word importing masculine gender only may extend and be applied to females and to corporations as well as males. So we had that law in the books. And then in 1997, we amended it to say the terms because of sex or gender on the basis of sex or gender or terms of similar import when used in reference to discrimination shall be construed to include but not limited to the, because of pregnancy, childbirth, or related medical conditions. And then, as often is the case, in 2005, we d went through a recodification of a number of provisions in, in chapter, um, 
in Title One uh, and Title Two Point One, Chapter Two Point One of the Code, and and normally when the Code Commission goes through a process of recodification, the watchword is that they're not supposed to change anything substantively. They can reorganize stuff, they can move stuff around, but they're not supposed to be able to change things substantively. So you tell me if they followed that, because that explanation of the terms got moved from the first chapter of the code that applies to everything into um, a chapter of the code called 2.2, which is the general administration of government, and into a provision of 2.2, 2.2.3901, which is the Human Rights Act. So instead of being a modification of all those words whenever they appear in the code, it now only modifies those words when it appears in the Human Rights Act, and it imported that very language to, you know, obviously that was meant to overrule in state law the Gilbert case, which said that pregnancy discrimination wasn't sex discrimination, and that was the intent. But they moved it there. Well, so now it only applies to that one narrow area. And then they also changed the basic provision of the law. Remember before it said, a word importing the masculine gender only may extend and be applied to females and to corporations as well as males. Now it says, a word used in the masculine includes the feminine and neuter. So when you go through the code and you see his or it, it clearly a word used in the masculine, you see his or something that's a masculine word, it's inclusive of the feminine and neuter. But woman, which is not a word that is in the masculine, isn't defined by this to be inclusive of the masculine and the neuter. And so it, this language, which in theory was not supposed to change anything, has made our code more gendered rather than less gendered and is something to really think about as you think about the way you go through the Virginia law and, and think about things. Now, where we see this daily is, you know, we're litigating a case under Title IX and the Constitution on behalf of Gavin Grimm, who's a 17-year-old uh, transgender young man in, who's going to high school in Gloucester. And when he started his sophomore year, he transitioned, and he came to school, and he and the principal worked out a deal where he would be able to uh, use the bathroom that accorded with his gender identity. And everything went fine for seven weeks, and then somebody's parent got all exercised and went to the school board, and the school board adopted a policy that basically said, you have to use the bathroom that accords with your, quote, biological sex and or this kind of special single-stall restrooms that they built. And we uh, initially filed a complaint with the Office for Civil Rights of the Department of Education saying that we believe that uh, discrimination based on gender identity is sex discrimination. And we um, didn't, we got a sort of a signal from the education department that they would be supportive, but that they weren't going to investigate it independently. And so we went ahead and filed suit. And we have been successful up until now, partly because the feds have come in and said that they have interpreted Title IX and, and a number of other federal statutes to say that anything that is a prohibition of sex discrimination is automatically to be interpreted to be a prohibition of discrimination based on gender identity or expression. Um, that has now gotten involved in a very interesting conversation about uh, when federal agencies are entitled to deference for what they've done. 
So there are different cases. You know, when you study administrative law, you'll see that there are different cases that set up different standards for when federal agencies are entitled to deference. And the issue in our case is whether it's, they're entitled to our deference, A-U-E-R, which is a specific kind of deference. And the school board is arguing that the federal interpretation is not entitled to any deference in the court because um, it's in, embodied in a guideline and dear colleague letter and not in a set of regulations that were adopted pursuant to the Administrative Process Act. And we have gotten the Fourth Circuit to agree with us that our deference means that the federal interpretation should be given deference and that that means that discrimination based on gender identity in the context of prohibiting Gavin from going to the bathroom in accordance with this identity is, is discrimination under Title IX. Uh, the school board, not liking that outcome, has gone to the United States Supreme Court. We are waiting, as, as I speak, <laughs> to hear whether the court's going to grant cert, and if so, on what issues. court could just decide it's going to grant cert on the deference issue and nothing else. And then all we would know is whether the federal agency's view of things count in our case or not. We're up on a motion to dismiss. Um, we, the school board you know, went up seeking interlocutory review of a motion to dismiss. We initially filed and then they filed. But um, we're in a situation where the Supreme Court could take the case either just looking at the deference issue or potentially looking at the entire substantive issue of whether Title IX's prohibition of sex discrimination extends to gender identity uh, discrimination or not. And, you know, for me, sort of the... The irony of all this, uh, going back to Title IX, is when I graduated from UVA, my first job out of law school was I was a uh, civil rights lawyer at the, what was then the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, which included what's now the Department of Education. And one of my first assignments was to work on the Title IX regs that the Congress had just uh, legislatively uh, passed a law saying the department had to come out with regs to interpret Title IX. And I have to say, when we were writing the regs, we were very fixated on uh, separate and equal facilities because the concern at the time in our worldview was that we were writing uh, regs in a time in which, you know, football teams were in these mega, uh, you know, uh, incredible facilities and women's sports teams were changing down the hall in the restroom and... Um, we were looking at all kinds of issues like that. And so if you go back and look at the Title IX rules, um, start with the fact that the statute itself, you know, created these exceptions for single-gender institutions and making it okay for private institutions not to discriminate in admissions. Um, the ban on admissions discrimination only applies to public colleges and universities and public schools. And even then, if you were single-gender from the inception, under Title IX, you could stay single gender even as a public institution, which is why VMI was still single gender when I was at the, at the AG's office in the 90s. So you had this sort of recognition, even in Title IX, that there were you know, separations of the sexes that were okay and appropriate. And you'll see that reflected in the regulations. And the, the school board, in our case, and the the trial judge at the at the at the uh, trial level, who is Judge Dumar, who we asked to be replaced if the case was remanded to the district court, and the Fourth Circuit didn't do that for us. Um, you know, fixated on a number of the regulations that say things like comparable facilities. Now, remember, the word is comparable. Um, a recipient being a 
a school or college or a university, may provide separate toilet, locker room, and shower facilities on the basis of sex, but such facilities provided for students of one sex shall be comparable to such facilities provided for students of the other sex. And they fixated on that. And so this leads me back to, well, what is the conversation we're having now? And the conversation we're having now is, what does that mean? And what does it mean? As far as we're concerned, Gavin is a boy. And he can go to the boys' room. And they can still have boys' rooms and girls' rooms, but it doesn't tell you anything about whether someone who's trans can use those facilities. And, you know, what the school division is saying is, that this provision essentially is defined by biological parts and by what what your assigned sex was at birth and not by uh, how you identify today. And so we're in the middle of this very interesting conversation about what does sex mean, what does gender mean, what does gender identity mean, what does gender expression mean, how do they all interact and interrelate, and how do we sort all of that out? And I was at a conference on Saturday where a person said to me, well, I've gone through the, I've gone through the process. I have uh, changed my uh, gender on my uh, birth certificate. I am, I am a man on my birth certificate. My driver's license says man. And I go to work at the Department of Corrections, and they won't let me do strip searches of men because their perception is that I'm not a real man. And, you know, we have pretty strong rules and some of them are embedded in the Prevention of Rape Act that, you know, that the Department of Corrections, I assume, thinks they're following, but the reality is this guy's a guy and he should be treated the same as other guys in the context of the work environment he's in. But those are hard issues that people are confronting and it is um, it is something that, you know, is evolving and it is um, something that involves this incredible uh, intersection of law and policy and science. One of the encouraging things when we were in the Fourth Circuit on Gavin's case was that one of the judges, as the school board was making rather um, uh, sort of, I don't know how to characterize them, but their arguments were what you might surmise, which is, you know, a person is born a certain way, and that's who they are, and it's immutable, and it doesn't change, and that's the way we're going to behave. And this one of the judges said, look, I don't think you guys know what the science is, <laughs> you know, and really talked very, from a very informed place about how our perceptions of gender and gender identity and sex have evolved over time and how the law has to be responsive to that. And yet, you know, um, we're not in a place where that's certainly a majority view, even among the people that we interact with daily uh, in our peer groups and in our schools and, uh, and among, you know, our fellow lawyers and in the courts. So it's a, it's a really interesting ongoing conversation that um, when we were writing the Title IX regs in 1976, didn't occur to me that somebody was going to be asking questions about what it meant to have separate facilities for men and women. There's also a provision here about separate housing facilities, and and all of that presupposes that you um, that sex and gender and gender identity are the same, and they're not. And it it means that we have to look at things differently. 
so that's kind of what I, I just wanted to talk about a little bit about what you know what what what's real out there, what's happening out there in terms of how we see whether we're feminists or not feminists, whether we're women or men. All of these terms and all of this reality is shifting and moving in a way that is you know more inclusive and and uh, and when you add to that that there is an increasing understanding and awareness that this whole conversation I've just been having with you is stated in the binary. And it's not at all clear whether that makes sense anymore. Um, that uh, how do you how do you interact with someone who says, "Well, you can have separate facilities based on, but I get to choose." Uh, you know, what what does it mean to to not be in the binary anymore? And how do we accommodate uh, the reality that that for some people identity is a very fluid concept and that it may vary over time and may vary over very short periods of time. And what is it, how do we, how do we interact with that in these laws that are all written as if there's a clear this and that and no in between. So you guys have exciting times ahead of you in terms of how you think about these things and how you interact with these kinds of issues in the context of the jobs that you will have. And, and it carries through in terms of just the day-to-day, uh, in terms of I, we were having a conversation in my office the other day about parental leave and, and leave issues, and, and some of the folks were arguing very strenuously that if we were to move in any direction, it should be maternity leave only. And, and, I, and I was saying, well, n- not really, because if we really want roles to be seen differently, then you have to be a little bit more open about how you see parental responsibility. And I said, and besides that, as a woman who's a little bit further along and been through a number of different stages of my life, there are plenty of different times when somebody might want to take time for their family other than just the point, you know, six weeks after birth or 12 weeks after birth of a child. And I got accused of being anti-feminist because I didn't want to elevate women and the, the unique as- aspect of women, you know, above everything else. And I said, you know, hey... Talk to me in 40 years, <laughs> you know, because I had just taken family leave because my nephew was in a life-threatening ski accident in March, and my brother and sister-in-law were spending every night for three weeks in a, in a ICU, and they had two other children at home who needed, you know, an adult person in their life, and so I took family leave for a week to do that. That seems to me to be something we all should be entitled to do, regardless of what our choices are about about childbearing. So, you know, we're having a wonderful conversation in our office about this and about how we think about the roles that we play and how that should influence the policies we have in work. So it won't just be when you're lawyering. It'll be when you're being an employee or being an employer that you start to think about how these things, you know, might need to look different if you were to try to posit a future in which our roles are much more uh, able to be completely defined by our own ideas about who we are and what we want to do rather than social constructs that we're required to adhere to. So that's what I wanted to talk about today. Anybody got any questions? (laughs) And anything's fair game. I mean, look, the ACLU has one of the broadest portfolios of any social justice organization you'll interact (laughs) with. So I'm happy to talk about police Community Relations, which I'll be on a panel Thursday talking about uh, police uh, engagement with the community. Uh, I was at a panel last night on autism in the criminal justice system, so yes. So this is uh, pretty broad.
as I'm sure you're aware, um, and I'm sure everyone's aware, um, DOD recently put out its first set of regulations regarding people who are serving openly transgender right. military. Um, they have more regulations forthcoming, but the first set of regulations is pretty broad. Um, and for things like, um, you know, physical fitness standards and for appearance standards, they say, well, you'll identify based on your gender and that's it. As soon as you get a diagnosis that you need to transition for your, you know, your mental health, then immediately you will be transitioned, um, which of course poses a lot of problems with people who are in transition, people who, you know, in the future, they have not reached yet the idea that people might want to be gender non-conforming. Um, mm -hmm. But to the, to the extent that DOD regulations are, you know, a sense, a sort of legislation, um, what kind of problems do you see arising from that? <laughs> and and in some respects, because of the physical fitness pieces of this, it's not dissimilar to what's going on in the whole athletic community right, right. now. And that's, uh, that's so, right. Yeah. Yeah. So so they're kind of similar constructs and similar concepts. And let me just say, yeah, let me just put a conclusion out here, which is that everybody I've talked to says that once you're truly in transition and you're taking the hormones that are associated with that, if you are you know, in hormone therapy, that the reality is that very soon there is no meaningful physical difference between you as a person who's in therapy and in transition and a person who was uh, born identified as a woman or born identified as a man. So one of the key things that I think we see every day is the refusal to accept the reality that someone who has, you know, transitioned is a boy, is a, is, is a girl, is a woman, is a man. And in the context of the military, you know, that'll require people to, to come to the, uh, you know, awareness and understanding that that person is just like the other guys or women in their unit. And where you see it playing out is that there will be a period where people believe that the person who transitioned from male to female has an unfair advantage because they still have some of the physical structure and some of the strength, but, but you know, estrogen isn't really helpful in that regard uh, over time. Um, and so, you know, there will come a point in time when the science will catch up with people's understanding. Same, so people will say that woman has an unfair advantage because she has attributes that mean that she is stronger, more powerful, whatever. On the other side, it could be that um, a female to male transition per trans person, someone will say, well, that man has an advantage because he has heightened endurance and is able to do things for a longer period of time, you know. But ultimately, that'll get sorted out by the science. And as DOD and other organizations come to terms with the, just the fundamental need to accept that you stop dealing with somebody as other, but they are who they are, then, then that'll, it'll, it'll get easier. But there'll be a period where it's not easy. So are there particular things about the regs that cause you to have concerns? Well, what I envision as a potential problem is that for the physical fitness test, it says you'll just conform to the test that is for your gender. Mm -hmm. um, and as you talked about, there's a period of transition where yep. hormonally, you know, there are differences and there are, there are going to be differences right. in performance. Um, so what I potentially envision as a potential solution would be just to have a PT test based on the MOS or the job you're doing as opposed to gender. Um, and so I wonder, you know, 
what you're talking about yeah. is, is great, you know, general acceptance yeah. and understanding that at right. some point the science, you know, makes everything equal out is great, but for, you know, they have yet to address what happens in that period of transition. And in addition, um, you know, I, I yeah. am curious as to what you think as to whether well, it's better to have a non-gen, you know, just yeah. you're, I mean, you're very insightful. MOS means mode of service or method of service, right? I mean, and it means your job assignment within the military. My dad and I used to have this conversation. My father was in the Army for 39 years, and he won an award for advancing women and minorities in the military because he was in charge of all the material acquisition. And even though he didn't support the idea of women in combat personally, he supported the idea that every piece of equipment that was developed shouldn't exclude women from being in combat because that was Congress's decision to make, not his. So if people can operate helicopters and tanks and things now, it's because my father made sure that 5 to 95% of people physically, whether they were women or men, could operate that equipment. So that's the right place to go, which is to say, um, although we did have a fight once where he said, show me a woman who can carry a 70-pound pack across the, you know, the geographic whatever of the Falkland Islands and Several women in the room raised their hands and said, "I can." So, you know, but but he he was he had some stereotypes embedded in his worldview. But I think I think you're right. I mean, the key is in private sector. We have something called the Uniform Employee Selection Guidelines. And in the private sector, if you're an employer and you use any methodology for choosing people, every single element under Connecticut versus Teal, every single element of that process of choosing somebody for a job can be examined to see if it adversely impacts women and minorities. Um, and so the way that the EEOC guidelines state is that women and minorities ought to persist in the selection process at four-fifths the rate of men, white men. And if they're not, then you should examine whether whatever's selecting people out is business necessary. Okay, so um, if I uh, look at my pool of people for a job in my organization and it isn't representative of availability and I go back out and I build a pool that's representative of availability, that's not the end of the inquiry. The next thing I have to do is when I select people for interviews, I have to go back and make sure that people are persisting in the process in a non-discriminatory way and then I'm not using a test, an interview question, an assumption to screen them out. So if we took that private sector framework and applied it to the military, what we would be doing is looking at every single MOS, every single job in the military, and saying, what are the real requirements for accomplishing the, you know, this, the tasks associated with this job, and what are the real requirements and physical characteristics and other kinds of qualifications that are necessary? And we wouldn't have gendered tests. And, we, and I think as we move to the point where we have in the military increasingly... Um, uh, cut back on the number of jobs that are gender segregated. So as we get to every MOS in the military being equally available to everyone, then, then, then the conversation we should be trying to force is why should the military be subject to a different set of standards on the selection process than the private sector? So that's, I think it's very insightful. Huh? What? Right. I mean, the military is no different. I mean, and, and interestingly, my dad gave a speech here in 1974 on the battlefield of the future um, to the ROTC unit, and he said, you know, the battlefield of the future is one in which what will matter most is how well you do in terms of your ability to manage technology and to work with, and we'll have, we'll have laptops. I mean, in 1974, you know, no. <laughs> 
you know. I mean, <laughs> he, he was telling people, we're going to have these things that fit on your lap, and we're going to be doing, you know, doing technology on the, in the field. And, and the more you head in that direction, and the more robots there are in the field, and the more of those other things, and all of these old traditional ideas about you have to do so many push-ups to get to X will we'll go by the wayside, but it'll take a while. But just talk about why should it be different from the private sector. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that, uh, for example, the Virginia Board of Health um, had a vote yesterday on trash laws. Yep. And, and obviously a lot of things have changed in the country with the whole men's health decision. So can you talk a little bit about sure. where you see Virginia going? That? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, whole women's health kind of <laughs> – my friend who's the Texas um, – uh, executive director of the Texas affiliate had to fight really hard to get people to agree to move that case forward because everybody assumed that it was going to end up in a really bad place. And, you know, it's one of those things that you get into nationally when you're talking about these social issues. There's all the, always these strategy issues and, you know, is that the right case and are these the right facts? And, and people fought really hard to bring that case forward. And so when the case came down, I mean, everybody in the community who cared about um, reducing the burdens on women and opening up abortion access, we were shocked by how far the decision went. So now we're in a situation where in Virginia um, we have had these very onerous rules. Um, you know, one of the things that people don't understand about Virginia, and it's, I'm going to go back to the beginning, I mean, we have a criminal law. Every abortion is criminal. There are exceptions to that in different trimesters. We still have a trimester iteration. One of the strategy questions for the future is that Whole Women's Health and others are talking about viability, pre- and post-viability, which is not our current construct in Virginia. In Virginia, unlike most other states, you cannot get a second trimester abortion in anything other than a hospital. I mean, you can go to Pennsylvania and go to a clinic, you can go to lots of other states and go to a clinic to get a second trimester abortion. We have always required people go to a hospital. Um, now, what, when we, she talks about trap rules, targeted regulations against abortion providers, um, our, the effort there was to take those hospital standards and move them back into the first trimester and not just apply them to surgical abortion, but to apply them to medical abortion. Medical abortion is, you know, you, you take a couple pills, and your doctor monitors what happens, and you have a, a, a spontaneous abortion. Um, we are looking very hard at the question, why should the Commonwealth of Virginia have anything to say about medical abortions? Um, it, we don't tell doctors about prescribing other kinds of medicine. Um, and so why should we demand that a medical abortion be in any kind of particular facility? The win yesterday uh, was about... Uh, primarily about uh, the the onerous uh, requirements that were imposed on clinics providing first trimester abortions that required them to have hospital-like rooms, hallways that would accommodate two gurneys passing, you know, all kinds of restrictions that really have nothing to do with patient health or safety, but were purely put in place to drive the cost of abortion clinics up to a point where there would be fewer. And in fact, we have fewer in Virginia than we had when those regulations went into place. So the Board of Health voted yesterday to get rid of a lot of the regulations that have no benefit in terms of, of uh, patient health and safety and were purely and simply about regulatory burden. 
I mean, think about think about Virginia. Okay, can you imagine any other business where the Chamber of Commerce would say it was okay to regulate them out of business? I mean, it would be. Just think about that for a minute. So anyway, <laughs> I mean, whether it's the local rules or the state rules, that's what they're trying to do. And so what we're looking at Whole Women's Health to say is, okay, how much further can we go? And, you know, the reality is most people don't know that the, even those onerous rules applied only to providers that do five or more abortions a month. Any doctor in Virginia can do up to four abortions a month without any regulation, whether they're surgical or medical. And access would be less of a problem if more doctors didn't see abortion as that icky thing that only those people do. So getting rid of the stigma is a huge you know, effort of ours um, going forward. Um, because you know we started out stigmatizing abortion as a process almost on day one. when. When Roe versus Wade was decided, Virginia, this will come as no surprise to you, did not immediately change the statute to comply with the constitutional requirements. And it took a lawsuit to get, like it took a lawsuit to open University of Virginia to women, um, it took a lawsuit to get the, the Commonwealth in line with the Roe versus Wade decision. Well, immediately after that, Virginia was one of 37 states in the first two years after Roe versus Wade that adopted a, quote, conscience clause that basically said if you don't want to participate in providing abortions or whether you're an individual provider or a hospital or whatever, you can, you can choose not to if it offends your religious beliefs. And, and, oh, by the way, even if you harm somebody, you can't be sued for damages. And so we created this immediate perception that somehow you know, abortion is not a standard medical you know, procedure. And we've, that's been carried forward in that we don't teach it in medical school. Um, because we're, you know, we're, people are afraid to teach it. And so you end up with this idea that abortion can only be done in these very, you know, we, only, we have very geographically limited areas where we have abortion providers that, that are existing in Virginia. But the reality is any OBGYN in Charlottesville could do a medical abortion tomorrow. They can do up to four a month. And we've been encouraging people to have that conversation with their doctors, whether they're OBGYN or, or family practitioners. But we also are really seriously considering whether we can get the, any kind of statutory regulation of medical abortions off the books on the grounds that it burdens women and it has no medical benefit, no medical reason that is driving its the coverage by the, by the regulations. So did that answer your question? Okay. Anybody else? Yes, sir. When you were talking about Kevin's case, I, my mind automatically went to North Carolina. Yeah. So I was wondering how you see it in any way well, that case the, would, like, yeah. conversely, either way. Yeah. Well, let me just tell you the good news. The good news is that, well, okay, maybe I'll do the bad news first. I don't know. Anyway, HB2, North Carolina's law, did a couple of things. and. It did one thing, which was it codified what we call in Virginia the Dillon Rule. Okay? We have a judge-made common law that no locality can adopt any statute or any ordinance that they don't have the authority for under state law. So the Dillon Rule tells our localities, you cannot have a non-discrimination provision vis-a-vis -vis your students or employees because 
uh, that covers gender, orient gender identity and sexual orientation because there's nothing in state law that says you can. Now, a number of localities have done it. Some, none of them have been sued. But part of what the North Carolina statute did was all it did was codify the current state of the law in Virginia, okay, under the Dillon rule. The second thing it did was specifically say in public facilities you have to go to the bathroom that is in accordance with um, your um, the genitals that you were born with, okay? Um, we were able to fight that law off in Virginia. That They tried to do that in our last General Assembly session, and we were able to defeat it, in part because one of the delegates, not one of the more liberal ones, said, let me ask you a question. Um, I go to these concerts with my wife all the time, and she's all the time telling me she came back from the restroom, and there was a really long line, so she and the other women went in the stalls in the men's room. Would she be in violation of this statute? And the the proponent of the bill said, well, yeah. He said, I don't think I can vote for that. <laughs> so, um, you know, so we kind of escaped uh, having the, the bathroom part of HB2. The, the good news is, is that our case and the Title IX case, and, and it's both Title IX and the Constitution, is ahead of HB2 case in the Fourth Circuit, and so far the Fourth Circuit's done the right things. I mean, this is the other place of cognitive dissonance for me and lawyers of my generation, which is I keep having to tell people the Fourth Circuit is not the Fourth Circuit I graduated law school to. I mean, back then it was so conservative that one of the judges told me that I couldn't be a clerk for him because I was single and he couldn't have a single woman in his chamber. Um, so it, it's now uh, a majority uh, either Clinton or um, or Obama appointees, and the one of the three judges who's not one of those is a guy named Roger Gregory, who's a former civil rights lawyer uh, from Richmond, who was first nominated by Clinton in a recess appointment, and then ultimately is seen as a Bush nominee. So um, it's a very liberal bench, and we got a good decision out of them in the Gavin's case, and I fully believe that when HB2 goes up, on the question about localities and the power of localities, that's not going to be a federal question, I don't think. Um, and so, you know, you have that one fight, which is do you have home rule or do you not have home rule? But then the whole question of whether the bathroom provisions violate the um, federal law is, will, will go up in HB2. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I guess on that is what's with respect to like the separation of powers question or the administrative law question, like what's your, because I think there's a lot of people would say like, yeah, the, the science should match up with the law, but that's Congress's job to do that. So a law that was enacted in the 1970s that didn't conceive of this shouldn't apply to, like we shouldn't apply sex discrimination to yeah. issues. Like what's your, I mean, I'm just curious because I think I agree with you what you're saying, but, like, what's your kind of principle? Well, I mean, all this, you know, this whole legal development started with the case involving the woman accountant who sued because she said, I was discriminated against in terms of my getting a partnership in the accountancy firm because I wasn't feminine enough, right? I didn't exhibit the right... I didn't, I didn't wear makeup. I didn't act enough like a woman. And they, they weren't judging me based on whether I was a good accountant or not. They were judging me based on how I presented myself. And so that was sort of the first case that uh, got people thinking, well, 
gender expression, gender identity is a part of sex discrimination, inevitably. And then you go, we had a case um, that we litigated, the ACLU litigated, involving a woman named Diane Scheuer. And Diane uh, was a, uh, is a military veteran. Um, she went through an entire uh, job uh, application process, was told she had the job as a man. And she went to the folk when she, they offered her the job and said, that's really great. I need you to know I've been transitioning. And Monday, when I come to work, I'm going to be Diane Scheuer. And not who I, you know, not the name I applied. And they said, oh, well, then don't come to work. And we were able, it was a case involving the Library of Congress, and we were able to prove that they didn't hire her because she was a woman. And, and so, you know, those are cases that begin, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like the whole evolution that brought us to Brown versus Board of Education. I mean, we started out with cases in the higher ed and PhD area that established that separate was inherently unequal, and then that built into a point where we finally applied that to elementary and secondary school. This is not any different in terms of the evolution of the law. So we start and you begin to peel back the onion and ultimately the principle is clear, which is gender identity and gender expression are by definition a part of sex discrimination. I think the harder, the harder lift legally, and it's one of our objectives, is to prove that sexual orientation discrimination also is sex discrimination. That may be a more difficult lift in some respects. But the evolution of the law has moved us closer and closer to being able to get good decisions along that line as well. So, but I think you, you, you know, if you go back and read Simple Justice and you look at the way that, that the whole civil rights movement brought the law to the point where the decision in Brown was inevitable, it'll help you see how these things happen and, and, and where we are sort of in the same pattern in this particular evolution. Yeah. And, and nothing, none of our arguments is about maintaining the status quo. And, and I think what you'll find, um, there's, a, there's an incremental thing going on in the practical world as well. So today I went to the bathroom at Greenberry's, and I couldn't find the bathroom. Because not only did it not have a men's and a women's sign on it, I could, it had no sign on it. And I was like, well, is this the storage room or closet? You know, oh, no, it's the, it's the bathroom. So you have, you know, people who are serving customers who are making decisions that already kind of remove the identity, you know, from, from the, the bathroom choice. In Washington, there is a, a restaurant that has completely gutted their restrooms, and now there is a restroom, and you walk in, and on one side there are private stalls with doors, and there's a big picture of a urinal. 
Okay? And on the other side, there are private stalls with doors, and there's a big picture of a toilet, a more traditional sit-down thing. Okay? You go in there and you choose your facility. You don't choose your gender. You don't choose. You just walk in the door and go, oh, I'm going to go in that stall because that's the equipment I want to use at this particular moment in time. Okay? So, um, yeah, I tried the other one. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but it is, um, but I think those are the kinds of choices that are going to make a lot of this conversation seem so last year, soon. And, I mean, it, to my mind, you know, the American fixation on bathrooms is a little weird. I mean, when I went to the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, we were in a work product, works project administration building. And I said to one of my folk, why are these, there are two women's restrooms like right next door to each other. Why aren't they all one? And the answer is because one used to be black and one used to be white when, it was, when that building was built. Um, and so we were fixated on bathrooms. Then I, my, first, my first day I ever testified in front of the General Assembly, I went down to testify in favor of the Women's Rights Amendment and the Equal Rights Amendment. And Phyllis Schlafly was there, bless her heart. And, and all she wanted to talk about was bathrooms and women in combat. I mean, those were the two things that, you know, were the things that were going to sink the Equal Rights Amendment. And now, you know, in the context of, of trans folks, we're fixated on bathrooms again. I mean, go to Europe, go to Japan, <laughs> go lots of different places in the world. This fixation on bathrooms doesn't exist. And so it's a uniquely American exper experience. So I, I think what's going to happen is as, as we become increasingly global, but more importantly, as people in the business community and customer service people start responding to customer needs and wants, it's going to become less and less an issue in terms of that particular issue being defined in a binary. We're not going to move away from the binary so easily across a number of other issues. That, that you, you, when you discuss like, legal strategy in these cases, or say with parental leave and that conversation, mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you're but uh, is there a fear or a concern of these cases, what precedents they set, further entrenching some of these? Yeah, I mean, I think, yes. I mean, there's no question that um, one does look at these things and ask oneself some questions about what, what precedent am I setting for the future and, and how do I avoid setting precedent I want to set. But sometimes you don't see it. I mean, you know, when we're writing the Title IX rules and we're trying to make sure that women in men's locker rooms are equally luxurious, it never occurred to us in 1975 um, that we were writing regs that were going to be read against a, a completely different set of questions. So, you know, sometimes you're just not as prescient as you'd like to be. Yeah. I also have to tell you in all honesty that I lobbied for the amendment to the Virginia Constitution that allows police departments to get money from drug busts on civil asset forfeitures. I really regret that one, too. <laughs> so, you know, it seemed like a good idea at the time. But, yeah, you just can't always be prescient, you know. But I think you're right. I mean, we do think, I mean, we're always trying to suss out the long game as best we can. Anything else? Now, this is my friend Suzanne Lapierre. She's from the class of 1981, <laughs> and she does amazing work internationally on all kinds of things with the Dalai Lama and Buddhism, and she's working in California to make sure that people who are 
um, hiring immigrants or doing that in a way that doesn't allow them to be exploited and 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 she worked on trying to decriminalize juvenile prostitution too so um, you know there are lots of good women lawyers who graduated from here doing interesting work so all right thank you guys